0: Welcome to the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy 17th Anniversary Podcast Series. We're talking with experts at the school on a range of topics under the grand theme of tackling the grand challenge in individual and social well-being. Following the talks on the social cohesion, diversity, and inclusion, this is the third podcast of the series on aging demography and its implications on the future of work, welfare, and social compact. My name is Zeewan Lee, and I'm an assistant professor at Lee Kuan Yew School. I'll be serving today as your host and a co-discussant. We have with us, Mr. Christopher Gee, a senior research fellow and head of governance and economy at the Institute of Policy Studies at NUS. Today, we'll be discussing opportunities and challenges faced by aging societies, possible policy interventions, and implications of the interventions for the social cohesiveness. Before we jump into discussion, let me give you a quick stat on the severity of population aging the countries around the globe face today. The World Health Organization has projected that world's population aged 65 or older will rise to 1.5 billion by 2050, representing almost 16% of the total. The number of older persons in less developed countries is expected to increase at a rate more than three times as quickly as in developed countries. I'm interested in this phenomenon of population aging from the research standpoint. A stream of my research examines how aging workers fare in the labor market in terms of wage growth, job transitions, or retirement timing in the face of technological changes. My findings that individuals whose skills are more automatable tend to experience worse labor market outcomes hold more implications for the aging workers. And I say that because the aging workers encounter fewer opportunities to undergo reskilling or upskilling to adapt to technological changes. The outcome of my paper is one of many, many findings out there that show that aging individuals are especially vulnerable to ongoing structural changes in the labor market. Given the rapid population aging in many countries, this is a serious labor market challenge. So, Chris, outside the labor market, are there any other difficulties that aging individuals experience? And what are the consequences of population aging for individuals and societies at large?
1: Thanks, Yvonne. And I'll take the matters you raise about the economic consequences of population aging first at the societal level and then how it relates to individuals. And it's all part of what is called demographic transition, where you get this trend of population aging. And it's also com- important to consider when this transition happens within a country's economic development. As birth rates fall in very many countries now below the replacement level of of two children per woman. Family sizes have shrunk so that in aged societies there are fewer people in the working age to support the larger numbers of older persons who have stopped working. One example is China where the one child policy was put in place in 1980. That dovetail with very strong economic growth and modernization and urbanization and all this combined and led to the emergence of many families where there is one grandchild, two parents and and four grandparents. As people are living longer, you might even have to add up to eight great grandparents into the mix as well. So you get this inverted pyramid shape to family structures, and that affects ultimately how that society takes care of its old. Another example is South Korea, where there's been a very rapid pace of aging due to ultra low fertility rates which means that it is projected to overtake Japan sometime in the next decade as the most aged country in Asia. That population aging there has happened so fast that people who are old today grew up and entered the workforce in a very different country than what it is now. The old in these very rapidly aging countries live in an environment that has dramatically higher living standards, but also higher living costs. And many of them lack the family support structures that would have been the traditional filial mechanisms to support them in their old age. So for these aging societies, the the big challenge then is to be able to provide for the larger numbers of older persons and their retirement security. What kind of societal arrangements do you have? The institutions such as pension systems and a social security system that allows older people to be cared for, especially when they lose their independence, whether this is financially psychologically, or in terms of their mental or physical capacity. And how would these societies pay for all of this? Recall that it is a function of aging societies that you have fewer people entering the workforce than are leaving it. So the concern is that economic productivity declines, and the smaller number of working-age people supporting a larger population of older persons who are no longer working.
0: Let's bring in the ongoing global public health crisis, the COVID, into our discussion on population aging. COVID-19 has shaken up many things in the past two years, and its effects have been unevenly distributed across groups by age, gender, and employment status. Here, I'm addressing a question from the audience, asking whether older people are sidelined in the COVID era. This, I believe so. Older individuals are among those particularly affected by the pandemic in terms of morbidity and mortality. To add to all this... COVID has inadvertently accelerated automation and digitization of economic activities and societal interactions. Related to my previous point, aging individuals just tend to face more difficulties given the sudden technological growth.
1: So the old have borne the brunt of the worst effects of COVID, and it's also placed stresses on the whole of society. But of course, older people may find it harder to adapt to technological changes in the workplace, especially, but also in the social context. There are many implications for the older people in the workforce. Although workers need to prepare for the various stages of their working life, which are no longer so straightforwardly linear as it perhaps was in the past. So they may have to be job redesigned to cater for changes in work processes, as well as career redesign, thinking about what to pivot to when there are many alternative employments that also need facility with new technologies. So automation has affected process jobs not just in the manufacturing sector, but even in what we have traditionally considered to be desirable occupations in areas like financial or professional services. Consider how many cashiers you need now in a largely cashless society. But technology is also shifting the manual content of jobs, and there are many new jobs in the knowledge economy. So this will benefit those with experience who can adapt to new processes using new technology supervising or overseeing the now automated processes. All the people used to all the ways of doing their work will then need to unlearn and learn anew new ways of working, especially in tandem with this new technology. You can think of an example of the crane operator at a port who would previously have been able to control only one crane but is now managing and supervising many automated cranes, loading and unloading cargos at the port. There are also implications, though, for societal relationships. Older workers go into a pool where they compete with younger workers who may be more technologically adept, but also workers from other parts of the world as digitalization has meant that more work can be done remotely. So I think this aspect of technology, automation and remote working has disrupted societies. And we're right in the middle of it now, of course, made more acute because of the pandemic.
0: The COVID-19 has temporarily discouraged travel, migration, and economic activities across national borders. But let's move away from COVID a little bit. Before COVID, the world was undergoing globalization. Soon as we learn to live with the pandemic better, the globalizing forces are likely to resume. This phenomenon has implications for aging societies as well. Let's take migration of working age, younger individuals, for instance. Reasons for migration could vary, you know, for work or for study. Regardless, migration can alter the demographic landscape of both the home country and the destination country. I'm paraphrasing a question from Damien. Can immigration be a way to offset population aging in the destination country?
1: As with many things, there are many positives and negatives from these issues of migration and globalization. On the positive side, globalization has in some ways benefited the old people. Basic goods and access to to modern amenities has increased. And for a lot of the older generation in developed countries, their wealth has increased as the global economy has become more connected and integrated. The global cost of capital and of goods and services has fallen. And when you think about migration, international migration has offset some of the effects of population aging for some countries, supplementing the working age population and also providing a source of caregivers for the elderly. But there are also negative effects, of course. Globalization has widened wealth gaps, and this has affected those that weren't able to accumulate enough during this period of globalization, enough to, to pay for their, their own retirement security. Migration of working-age persons has hollowed out some countries, uh, particularly the sending countries. And, and whilst the old that have been left behind benefit from remittances sent back home, what about the retirement preparedness of those who are migrated? and send back home most of their pay and may not therefore have saved enough for their own post-retirement needs. So this is, is clearly you know, an important uh, issue affecting certain groups of, of people.
0: In addition to the hardships that we already discussed, we also need to talk about the gender dimension to population aging. A report that came out in 2020 by Bond, Sad, Lasler and Weller described how a persistent gender pay gap in the labor market translates into a retirement wealth gap between men and women. Women's retirement income, based on Social Security and pension benefits, tend to be about 80% of those of men. Essentially, what this means is that women, who, by the way, tend to outlive men, often enjoy less financial security in retirement. In many aging societies, the gender disparities in retirement security will be a serious problem. Chris, do you have any thoughts on this? There was also a related question from Annie Root, asking whether gender disparities in job security affects their retirement preparedness.
1: Sure, everyone. This is a really very important issue. The gender dimension in population aging is not talked about enough in my view. As you said, women tend to outlive men, but often have less financial security at older ages. This is due to the gender role in society where women are employed in the market economy far less intensively than men. Women do a disproportionate share of household production. And, And then you have lifetime gender pay gaps that even Though these have narrowed in recent times, when you compound these over a working life, this just means that women save less for their own retirement than men. And that's before you even start to factor in the caregiving burden for children as well as for older generation that women mainly take on. So if you think about this issue, women tend to save less than men, and then they have poorer retirement outcomes when they actually get older. And then you take into account some institutional arrangements that really impose the penalty even further. In some countries, say in China, the retirement age for women is lower than men. 50 years for blue-collar women workers, 55 for white-collar women, but you compare that with 60 for for most men. Whilst that's low for both ages, above both genders, that's still a 5 to 10-year difference in terms of a woman's working life as compared to men. So that's the kind of institutional arrangement that really needs to change going forward and rebalance that towards women. As a result of all of these difficulties, women are less likely to have the chance to prepare effectively for their retirement and are therefore dependent on their family to support them in their old age.
0: So far, we've talked about the challenges faced by aging societies. So what can be done? Can we talk about uh, possible interventions now? A number of audience questions focus on government interventions to tackle the challenges that we just talked about. Others asked about whether the answer lies in promoting self-sustainability of aging individuals. For instance, our Lee Kuan Yew School alum, Sujata, asked, with the life expectancy increasing, should policies be redesigned to encourage aging individuals to work longer? What are your thoughts, Chris?
1: Firstly, I think let's talk about redistribution and the establishment of social safety nets. I think this is necessary to to think about how we help today's older generation, especially those who have already run some way through their life course. And it's going to be really hard to help them re-engineer their productivity, at least in the economic sense. But I think it's more than just that. We We should tap on longevity dividends from many aging societies having more healthier, better educated older persons who can then be considered assets rather than liabilities or burdens or dependents. If you think about improvements in healthy life expectancy over the last three, four decades, a 70-year-old today has the same health outcomes as a 60-year-old would have had you know, maybe in 1970. If you get rid of these artificial, overly simplified notions that link chronological age with productivity and shift to you know a much more dynamic model of thinking about people's contribution linked to what they're actually doing and able to produce, then I think you're going to help to revise this idea of chronological aging, right? Just the years sticking by, but looking at what people can actually produce. So that's your longevity dividend. These unchanging retirement ages that are pegged to obsolete conceptions of when one should be considered old should therefore be removed
0: right the main takeaway from what chris just said which i especially agree with is that welfare and redistribution need to go hand in hand with the efforts to promote uh, productive aging or longer working lives of older individuals as for the notion of working longer several recent studies find that the act of working at old age brings not only the financial joy but also the psychological and health benefits The longer working life is actually a voluntary choice for many retirees who seek for a sense of purpose or a chance to reconnect with the society and colleagues at work. Let's then talk about how we can keep the aging workers in the labor force for longer. Some of the ongoing efforts, such as extending the statutory minimum retirement age or delaying pension eligibility age, may not be enough. Paraphrasing a question from Lester, How else do we increase employment opportunities for the elderly? Here's another related question. How do we help the aging workers whose skills are going outdated? Also, how do we encounter ageism or ageist mindsets in the workplaces that lead to discrimination against older workers?
1: I think you need to really focus on lifelong learning. Societies, especially in Asia, invest a lot in education, but this is mostly front-loaded into the younger years, maybe up to the mid-20s. I think we need to change this up, offer more programs that are embedded in work that is being done at that time to help workers of all ages, but especially the older ones, obviously, who need to constantly adapt their skills to what is needed at that point in time and increase their experience of new ways of doing things. In Singapore, we've had this scheme called Skills Future. That's a fantastic program. I think that needs to be rolled out and enhanced even more. We've got concepts like senior apprenticeships that are being piloted. And and we do have to perhaps consider the, the development of an ecosystem around people that continues throughout their whole career or their lives. This is a concept that I'm terming life course guides, counselors or navigators, Uh, You might call them also pathfinders that are established in social networks like LinkedIn or other social networks that are um, loosely defined somewhat, but can also be anchored around institutions such as our school, the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, through whose student base might get enlarged with the addition of students who might attend micro-modules, but who are integrated into the alumni, and then they form part of this ecosystem around which people might have access to those life course guides or navigators. So, you know, they're all part of this community anchored around, let's say, the school. And we go through life together. Each of us give each other advice about what we can do, maybe introduce each other to new opportunities for work, for other activities that lead to and contribute to societal progress. So this reskilling happens not just at an individual level, but also, you know, within the institution as as these ecosystems change over time, right? As people come and go, but but you have these dynamic ecosystems existing in society. But really, I think when we think about it, you know, all of this takes effort. It also takes money and resources. Whose responsibility is it to provide and create these, these institutions, these ecosystems? Who pays for it? If I have to take out time from my work to acquire new skill sets. Is it the role of my current employer to help support me whilst I retrain? Or is it a combination of the state, employers, or or the workers themselves? So who pays, right? I think that's quite an unresolved question in my mind too.
0: I agree. It's one of the biggest questions that remain to be solved. And it brings us straight back to the discussion on redistribution. How do you pay for this uh, life guide ecosystem, this social safety net, and the training retraining programs? Will the burden fall on the younger working-age population to pay for the older generation's retirement benefits? The problem here is that given the demographic shifts, the younger generation will not have the same level of retirement support by the time they themselves grow old. So they have to start saving up for their own retirement. If the younger generation cannot be taxed too heavily for the reasons that I just gave, then what other sources can we use to help finance the older generation? Here's an alternative idea for redistribution. Chris, what are your thoughts on Bill Gates' suggestion for the robot tax? It came out in 2017. It's where employers, those benefiting from automation of labor, are to be taxed based on the stock of robots they use in their production process.
1: So, Zewan, I think when we think about redistribution, it's not just about taxing the young to pay for redistributed programs to support the older generation. But instead, I think we should be thinking about putting in place better and more digitally enabled mechanisms for social risk pooling. What we've just talked about earlier about mobilizing all those healthy and experienced older workers, older persons with relevant skill sets, then it wouldn't be a matter of over-relying on ever smaller cohorts of young people to support the growing numbers of the chronologically old if we have larger numbers of older but healthier, more purposeful, highly skilled, experienced persons, these people will have the ability to continue to pay taxes and contribute to a collective risk pool that will help the unfortunate both in money as well as in time. So this is the longevity dividend paying off if we can get all of this working right. On taxation and that issue of robot taxes that you brought up, I think instead of thinking about robots as anthropomorphic machines mechanically working in a factory, displacing workers, that that robot tax description sort of engenders in one's mind, and we think about this shift, this broader shift towards environmental, social governance principles, ESG principles, that many are now thinking about very seriously and also about the UN's sustainable development goals, SDGs. Corporate social responsibility then means that owners of capital, all owners of capital of all types, right, both uh, digital as well as tangible capital, especially those that have benefited most from technological advance, these capital owners should contribute back to society in proportion, right? Pay taxes, obviously, and offer services for disadvantaged groups, including those unlucky seniors who do not have enough, as perhaps part of their corporate social responsibility as part of their you know, shift towards you know, being governed by these, these principles and goals. There needs, of course, to be the political will and the mechanisms to put all of this together. And they need to be complemented by guide rails for businesses and enterprise to consider broader societal goals rather than just their narrow commercial interests and profit maximization. But I think it can be done. And it's only then that we can prevent the fraying of this social compact that we have, the disintegration of societies that you know result from this lack of equity in societies, and then it will lead to really quite dystopian outcomes. I fear.
0: If our interventions go awry, if we don't do this right, do we foresee an emergence of generational conflicts? Do you think the policies addressing the problems of aging individuals can potentially lead to a deterioration of social compact? Before we hear from you, Chris, uh, let me quickly add, in addition to the younger generation who will, of course, be unhappy about the growing tax burden to support the retirees, we need to worry about the quote-unquote sandwich generation. Let me quickly define what it is as a quick refresher. The sandwich generation refers to those aged between 40 and 60 with dual responsibilities to provide for both the younger and the older generations, providing financial and other types of care. They are literally sandwiched in the middle with the younger and the older generations as, as the breads, the buns. Paraphrasing the question from the audience, how do we ensure that the sandwich generation meet their own retirement needs?
1: When we think about population aging, we, we first think about the old. But really, when we look at aging populations, aging societies. This encompasses people of all ages, the old, of course, but also the young and what we can call the sandwich generation, those in the middle that you're talking about. Really, we need to reform institutions, change behavioral norms and mindsets. Think about the whole life course holistically and avoid rigidly imposing artificial constructs, such as chronological age markers that define, you know, people being young, old, or, or in the sandwich generation. We shouldn't squander the longevity dividends that can come from what we were talking about earlier, those technological and health advances, but instead capture these longevity dividends, accumulate, and reinvest them. And those longevity dividends might be something as simple as rethinking about what we conceive of as work. You could develop the concept of micro jobs, which would allow seniors who prize work flexibility. to to work when they they wish to. These micro jobs might be paid or unpaid, but by continuing to remain engaged in society and contributing, each senior continues to lead purposeful lives. Their self-worth improves and societal well-being rises as a whole, not just for the older generation, but for everyone. So we we need to think about how we can uh, do this, right? Introduce these concepts like micro jobs that help people scaffold in things that make their lives purposeful. You also need to radically reform the institutions that rigidly define the life course. As I said earlier, you know, education shouldn't be front-loaded to the first 20-odd years of one's life. And if we adopt a constant mode of unlearning, relearning, and renewal and move to a more dynamic understanding of, of one's productivity, my own productivity, as well as others, then we get a better outcome in terms of everybody's economic and social contribution, and that society thrives. We think about the development of new support systems or networks, social risk pools, some at the national level implemented by the government, such as universal basic pensions, you know, Pillar Zero or Pillar One schemes under the World Bank nomenclature some of these need to be reconsidered and restructured for the modern age. But there are also other pillars that are linked to employment, personal savings, other social programs such as healthcare and housing that need to be put in place by societies. So the governments, the state probably needs to be um, an active participant in, in terms of building up these different pillars of social support. And then if we can... Imagine this formation of dynamic social uh, or community networks, the ecosystems of like-minded individuals of all ages, the young, the sandwich generation, as well as the old, all designed for people to work, live and play, right? Everybody having their life course guides or their pathfinders that we talked about earlier so that we all pool our risks together and share the mutual protection that we provide for each other. You know, you get this more likelihood of everybody pulling in the same direction, and then you diminish the risk of this social compact fraying. Societies that don't get this right run the risk of becoming dystopian, whereas societies that get this right will thrive. I know which one of these I would rather live in. Me
0: too. (laughs) Great. Thank you very much, Chris, for sharing your insights with me and the audience today. This was an enlightening discussion on the challenges the aging societies face and ways to go forward. Thank you everyone for joining us today. Please refer to our school website for more details on the 17th anniversary podcast series. Next podcast, airing on 7th of December, will feature Marina Canetti, assistant professor at our school, and Ben Kashore, Li Kushing professor in public management and co-director of Institute of Water Policy. They will be discussing China's vision for global environmental governance. Please stay tuned, thanks.